0: Hey everyone, welcome back to uh, Vegan Theology, episode five.
1: How's it Yay. going, Sarah? Oh, so good. I'm so excited to be back and continue our dialogue. How yeah. are you today, Kevin?
0: Doing well. It's a beautiful day out. So
1: beautiful fall day. Yeah. Yes, it's I awesome. like I like the fall days that feel like summer days. Hundred <laughs> <Yeah. 100%, laughs> percent. With it, yeah. with the added glory of uh, golden leaves and yeah, yeah, beautiful. Very nice. So yeah, we're all theologians um, in one way or another, and theology is best done within community, right? Because my ideas bump up against your ideas, and, and we can think the whole idea of iron sharpening iron, right? Yeah. So we definitely come to this always with a great sense of humility, knowing that whenever we talk about God, we're we're probably misspeaking more than we'd like to, Yeah. because God is incomprehensible in so many ways. And to pretend that we have a handle on who God is, is, is hubris and her- right. heretical. So, but it's still what we're called to do. And so we we're, we want to do it faithfully in community with, with all our listeners. And so, yeah, it's, it's very humbling and exciting.
0: Yeah. And I, that just reminds me, there was some theologian, I'll have to look up the quote, but he said basically that each generation has to do do its own theology. And if you think about what theology is, I think it is us working out our faith in the world that we're living in. And so yeah. I think a lot of times we have these concepts that have come down from Augustine and Luther and Wesley and whomever, and we feel like we need to hold on to those. And not that we don't, but at the same time, one of the things we're learning, especially when it comes to studying the Old Testament and the ancient Near East, is that in the last 150 years, there's been a lot of uncovering of ancient Near Eastern texts. Like mm. I think John Walton had said, almost a million wow. texts have been uncovered in the last 150 years. So these are this is information that you know John Calvin didn't have, that Martin Luther didn't have, that Augustine didn't have. So we we have the benefit of that, and so we can. It, it helps us understand better our Old Testament if we can understand the mindset and the worldview and a word that uh, John Walton uses, cultural river of the ancient Near East.
1: Yeah. So it's like we we can salute those who have gone before us. We stand on their shoulders, and and yet we can also, as new, you know, scholarly activities and unearthing these manuscripts and stuff comes to light. We can. We want to use every tool available to us. Correct. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've been we've been setting up a framework. I think is your yeah. word, Kevin.
0: Yeah, I, I think of this is kind of as a framework what we're trying to do with this vegan theology, something we can refer back to. And I think where we are right now is understanding how God created this world, and of course we've said that this creation is a reflection of God's character. Mm and god had an intention when he created the world and that intention kind of got disrupted and we're going to talk about what that disruption is it's chaos and we'll get to that it's disorder but god god's intentions have not changed hmm. god will continue to fulfill his intentions or we a lot of times we use the word his will but it's his intentions he he created a perfect system in Eden and he charged humans with expanding Eden across the planet. And that Eden is a temple. And guess what? When we're all redeemed and in the eternal state, Mm. it's going to be the new Eden, the new creation, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and will be among men on the new creation. And we'll be living in material bodies, doing material things. And so God is going to fulfill his original intention that was in the original creation. Right. And a lot of times Christians think they're going to heaven. Well, if they are going to heaven, it's just a pit stop. Eventually, we're going to the eternal state, the new creation. And we'll, be, we'll have resurrected bodies, material bodies. It's not like our bodies are going to resurrect and then become spirit. We will have resurrected Material bodies.
1: And the new creation looks a lot like the original creation in terms of being a peaceful, well-ordered, creative... non Abundant place.
0: Abundant place. There will be no predation.
1: So I like, I like this idea that you're setting up, that this foundation, I think, that we're trying to establish is that we know, I think we can ascertain a lot about God's character and God's intention by examining the creation story we have in genesis and we can also learn a lot when we see god's ultimate revelation for paradise for when all things are ultimately redeemed and what that's going to look like and how they look so similar right like you've often said if if we were just to focus on the first couple chapters of genesis and the last couple chapters of revelation and how all and like draw out all the similarities there so it's like it's almost like these are two bookends yes. that we're, we're setting up and, again, revealing God's intention, right. God's character. And everything, everything that happens in between those bookends in terms of the fall and the curse and sin and how God meets humans in our human fallen condition throughout human history, like everything that we see there should come under the umbrella, or, some, or whatever word you want to use, of these two bookends.
0: Right. right. Yeah, and, and, and if you're curious, there are some theologians who are speaking in these terms. Uh, a big one is G.K. Beale, John Walton, N.T. Wright, and J. Richard Middleton, just to name a few. So this is, uh, they're doing biblical theology, and they are bringing this out. Uh, they're, they're, they're really starting to emphasize this and we're starting to see it. There's another, uh, series of books. You can look it up. It's called short studies in biblical theology. And you can look at those books and you'll see there's like a theme and they are just tracking that theme throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. And so those are very interesting books to check out. So anyway, those, if you're curious for more, we can put some of those titles in our, in our notes, but that's just something to think about. So With that in mind, these bookends in mind, that God is going to fulfill his original intentions and purposes for creation. We need to get into the Hebrew mind and the ancient Near Eastern mind. And from John Walton, we get the idea that in the ancient Israelite mind and also in the ancient Near Eastern mind, the highest value they had was order. Mm -hmm. And like in our system, like he, he, he compares their system to our system, like we're more science based, we're more rational based more modern,
1: material-minded, material,
0: very material-minded. And we value, we see the world in terms of good and evil, maybe even that power structure, but good and evil, right? Where we, we think in those terms. The ancient Israelites did not think in those terms. And so they had three forms. They, they worked within a tripartite system. There was non-order, there was order, and there was disorder. Non-order was like, for instance, in Genesis, the early uh, verses of Genesis, where it says the earth was formless and void. That's non-order. And then when God starts creating, he starts bringing order to a non-order system. He starts incorporating the sea or separating the sea Mm -hmm. from the land, you know, the sky from the sea, these kinds of things. That's him. That's God establishing order. Now, in that system, there was no material creation happening. It was really all the material... In the world, the earth was already there. Right, created. it's almost
1: like we look at the text and we're like, tell us about how you manufactured all these material things. Tell us about all the things that God created. And, and that's fine. That's a fine story to tell. It's just that's actually not what the Genesis story is telling. It's, right. it's far more interested in tell us about why why these things are put in where right. they are and what is their function? What is their purpose? How, right. how did you set this up to function Right, in an order, a well-ordered system?
0: Right. I think it's one of the things he says is that, you know, Genesis is not a science book and the ancient, ancient Israelites were not interested in material processes or mechanisms. They were interested in agency and they were interested in who was setting this world up, God. And, yeah, like you said, function, they were for them something existed if it had a purpose. Right. It, and if if it had meaning. And so right, and so God sets up this perfect system, this ordered system, and then the other category is disorder. And so disorder would be, for instance, the fall when the serpent came into the garden and, and disrupted. He was a disruptive force. He was a disorderly force.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so he brought disorder to the system. And so Disorder assumes that order exists.
1: Okay, so yeah, it's very interesting. Like once, once you start thinking in this paradigm, like oh, the ancient Near Eastern person was concerned with order, and God's, God's version of order, which which kind of makes you think like, wow, you know, the ancient person maybe f- felt like this is a really chaotic world, and. They were looking for answers to, like, what is God's intended orderliness?
0: Right. And, and also, this isn't to say that God did not create the material universe. Yeah. He did. But Genesis 1 is not talking about that. If that makes any sense. We're not saying God did not create the world. Hmm. We believe that. It's just Genesis 1 is not talking about material mechanisms and material processes and material... The material world it's it's for the ancient near eastern for the ancient israelites to understand their purpose and the purpose of their creation okay. everything had a function and that's how they saw the world something existed if it was in a functioning system if it was working within a functioning system so things outside of that system didn't exist for them so like if the sea was outside the system or the desert or darkness kind of didn't exist.
1: So darkness for them is non-order
0: or chaos it falls yeah, yeah it's some kind of a chaotic thing.
1: Which is kind of interesting the way Genesis is written at the end of every day it says and there was evening and there was morning. Right. The first day there was evening there was morning the second day.
0: Um, no exactly and interestingly when I was in college, I came across a book by a physicist, and he's also Jewish. His name is Gerald Schroeder, and the book was called Genesis and the Big Bang. And it's interesting. He quotes one of the early Jewish translations. It's called the Onkelos Translation. Or it's actually called the Onkelos Targum, which is a translation. And listen to the way it translates Genesis 131. Mm-hmm. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was a unified order. And so this is an early uh, Jewish translation from the first century, and it was written in Aramaic, and it's one of the uh, standard texts of the Jewish people of the Torah. Yeah, and one of the things he says in this book, the Hebrew word for evening is erev. This is the literal meaning of the word, although the root of erev carries with it implications far beyond that of a setting sun. What is the visual sensation of evening? Darkness begins. Objects become obscure, blurred. The root of Erev means just that, mixed up, stirred together, disorderly. The Hebrew word for mourning is boker. Its meaning is quite the opposite of Erev. Morning brings the first light. Objects, visually mingled by the dark of night, become distinct entities. And this is the root meaning of boker, mm. discernible, able to be distinguished, orderly. And so it's interesting when you look at the creation account, we don't always, we don't think of our day as, we don't speak of it in terms of evening, morning. Right. That's not how we talk about our day. But in the, in the Genesis account, after each day, it says evening, morning, the first day. Yeah. Evening, morning, the second day. And, and there's this refrain with each day. And it's almost like God created, and then there's this refrain of going from disorder to order. Right, day one, da da da, on and on. So yeah,
1: chaos. There was chaos, and there was order. The first day, there right. was chaos, and that just reminds me, you know, to this day, Jewish people start their Sabbath at sundown right. on Friday night, and then they go through the night, and then they they celebrate Sabbath all day long, and then it ends at sundown saturday night right so it's almost like they still kind of measure time or they still to some degree think about time in those terms like right. evening to morning chaos to order
0: right order being a big thing in the ancient israelite mind we see god giving functions to the planets to the earth to animals right. to humans and so for instance i'm just going to read from genesis 1 to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So there you see God is giving functions to mm-hmm. the sun and the moon and the stars, that they're to count the days and the seasons, they're to be used for signs, and they're also to light the earth and to you know give the moon giving, giving a light at night. So these are functions that the ancient Near Eastern mind, the ancient Israelite mind would have understood.
1: Right. What are some of the other functions that are named in the days of creation, do you think?
0: Well, in uh, verse 11, the earth. The earth is to sprout vegetation. vegetation all the way, like plants, the, dr- the dry land. The dry land, yeah.
1: Is so, so the function of dry land is to provide all the green growing things.
0: Right. Provide our food. <laughs>
1: and the green growing things function is to be our food. Right. Okay. And then if we go down to like...
0: Verse 20.
1: Yeah. So the what are the functions that we could we could discern from the text in terms of non-human animals?
0: Well, I think here, I mean, this says, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. I think... Animals are meant to be animals. Hmm. And there's even an illusion in Genesis two that they are possibly companions to humans.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's almost like the function of a bird is to be a bird. Right. The function of the sea creatures is to be sea creatures. Right. Like
0: To thrive.
1: To be to to reflect the variety that is God. Yes, yeah, to thrive, to be who they are, who they were created to be. Exactly. So that's so different, right, than our kind of human-centric, anthropocentric, once again, like idea of what animals are for. Right. The function of animals in our mind, our modern mind, compared to the function that's revealed in the text, which is just its so much more about just, yeah, let a giraffe be a giraffe. Let a horse be a horse, let a chicken be a chicken. Right. You know, exactly. Um,
0: Let them thrive. Let them enjoy this abundance. hmm. It is the garden of Eden. And so, and then for humans, yeah, he charged us in the, with the image, which we've talked about. And the image is not some psychological or physical or physiological property within us as humans, but it's actually our charge. It's our commission to be in Walton's words, as image bearers, we are order producers. Mm -hmm. And when it says to subdue and rule, he's saying that as an ordering process, we are to order. And if you think about Adam, when God brought the animals to him, Adam named the animals, he was ordering creation. So he was a a co-creator in the process. God had created the universe or ordered it in such a way, setting the, the day and the night and giving functions to the earth and to the planets and to the animals. But then Adam ordering creative ordering process was to name the animals.
1: I mean, I just I think this is so cool and like exciting. It's just a it's a different way of reading this text that actually from beginning Genesis one one all the way through the end of Genesis two, it's it's all about if you're looking for this paradigm, which is God is ordering the chaos. God is bringing good order to the non-order. Right. God is giving all of creation a purpose, a function, and when you actually look at what the functions are, they're so life-giving. Right. They're so like, yeah. It's just it's it feels so positive. But yeah, everything, every day that God creates, there's a function there, there's a purpose there, there's a goodness there. Right. And, cl- and then all the way down to like we've already kind of laid a solid foundation for what is the human function. The image of God is to be God's substitutes, like we said. Like right. the image of God is is to take responsibility, to take to to take domain or to let creation be our dom- domain in terms of let's now be God God's representatives.
0: Right, and I like the word substitute because you are a teacher, and when you, if you ever have a substitute, you leave notes for them. And your expectation is that they will continue on the work that you're doing. And I know a lot of times we think substitutes aren't as awesome as our teachers and they, we have a study hall or something, they don't really do the work. But some substitutes do. But, but your mm-hmm. expectation is that they would carry on your work when you're not Definitely. there.
1: Definitely, sure.
0: And long term, if there's a long term substitute, then that's what, that is what they have to do. But what's interesting to me, and I, I love this, about, I love this whole order, non-order, this what we might call chaos to cosmos, cosmos being order, chaos being disorder or non-order. But I love this, if you think about John, the Gospel of John, hmm. the very first um, opening chapter, it talks about the Logos, Right a lot of times as christians we just call it the word and that, yeah. that is a, that is that is a translation of logos word but it's also reason or plan now this is interesting because i see this as and this is one definition from britannica is it's it says the divine reason implicit in the cosmos ordering it and giving it form and meaning
1: that's oxford's de- or uh, britannica's britannica. definition for logos
0: for logos
1: Say
0: that again. Uh, it says the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning, mm. and so that's fascinating yeah. because that definition of logos, which is a Greek idea, is resonating with what we're talking about here in yeah. the Old Testament text, this ancient Eastern understanding of order, and so what I love about this is this says to something to me about God's character that he created an ordered system. He created an ordered creation. He, it's nonviolent, it's peaceful, there's no predation. Um, there's abundance, it's secure, it's safe. Yeah, it's all these things. And he gave us the charge of continuing it, of maintaining it. And this is something we we haven't really talked about, but within an ordered system, there is an agent who needs to be maintaining it right and
1: i mean then that's another thing that i think we've missed historically um in the church is we see eden as this perfect static condition that like god finished it was done it's perfect nothing else it doesn't need to be touched whereas this the narrative we get from genesis and god passing the baton to humans as we've said is is that this order requires upkeep maintenance right. it requires a continued effort on the part of, uh, on the part of humans to preserve it right to think of creative ways of creating order
0: right And I think that's that's one of our charges is that we have to use our imaginations we have to use our Christian imaginations to think of ways to continue, our charge to bring order. And and this is something that I think about we're going to get into in, an, in a future episode, but when we're talking about the bookends here, we're talking about the new creation and what we, what I've used also is used the term, the goal of creation, like God's intentions are going to be fulfilled, but we should know that. Like we know, like, I remember we, we just saw, uh, uh, there was a theological lectureship at one of the churches in town And a woman who's a PhD came in and the whole topic was on Christian imagination. And we'll have to try and find the recording if we can. But the 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 facilitator asked her a question of like, Wait, you know, like what's an example of Christian imagination? I forget the exact question, but she almost kinda like fell flat. She didn't really have a response. And I thought, man, Mm -hmm. why can't you think about what it's going to be like in the new creation? Mm-hmm. there's going to be no animosity. There's going to be no violence. There's going to be no animals are going to, you know, there's not, there's not going to be any predation. It's going to, there's going to be abundance. Yeah. I mean, think about the goal and then think about our jobs as Christians today. It's not just believing things. It's actually doing things. It's like pushing back against the chaos. That is our charge. That is our commission to push back against the chaos. And so, Use your imagination. Think about the goal of creation, where we're going to be in the new creation, what it's going to be like. And I think that is what we can bring to our current state. And I think, just as an aside, but you think about like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you can call it a miracle. But really what he did is he just brought the new creation into the present reality. Yeah. It's what he did. Right. So...
1: Yeah, you know, and I just kind of want to go back just for a second, because one word that jumped out at me with that definition of logos was giving it meaning. I think the phrase was giving giving things meaning.
0: Form and meaning.
1: I don't know. That's just such a striking word to me. And when we look at the the function of non-human animals, just be who you're created to be, right. thrive, like enjoy. Right, enjoy, enjoy your life. Um, it's such a reverent way of looking at, at all the creatures, like they have meaning. Logos brings meaning to all of God's cr- creatures, right? Right. And I just think that's so beautiful.
0: Yeah, I see Logos as like the logic. It's basically divine logic. It's divine reason. Hmm. It is the divine logic of the universe. It is the divine logic of creation. It's very powerful and it's, and it's alive. I see it as alive. Yeah. Kind of what we're getting at here for 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 the new creation and for even Eden to be everything we're talking about, everything that it can be—a stable environment, a secure environment—that speaks to kind of the seventh day of creation, which we never really talk about. We always we always talk about the six days of creation as Christians, but John Walton was really pushing back on this, saying, "No, that the climax of creation is not humans; it's not." That's not the pinnacle of creation. The pinnacle of creation is actually the seventh day when God rests. Hmm. Because what it's saying is that God is coming into the temple, Eden being a temple, and he's coming and resting on his throne. And for him to be able to do that, he's taking rule. He's taking ownership. But it's also, what does it say about his creation? It says that everything's functioning properly.
1: And everything's secure. Everything's secure and safe and stable. Within God's kingdom, yeah. 100%. So God's rest is actually God's reign. Yes. So when the ancient Near Eastern person read that, yeah, you're so right. When we when we tell the story of creation, when we, whatever, when we're learning that, we're like, why, why would God need to rest? God doesn't get tired. What is this about? God took a nap? What, you know, it's, it's confusing to us. Right. And so we do. We just gloss over it. Right. Which which I think is kind of a theme of this podcast,' it's like so many scriptures like this one, or that have to do with animals throughout the Bible, they don't really fit into our theology, and so they're just ignored, they're glossed over they're
0: right, we'll get back to it, I guess yeah. <laughs> you know that's the idea or yeah. something but. um,
1: so yeah, this idea that, yeah, we do, we see day six as the grand finale, you know, h- yay, humans are here, Ta-da. you know, right. um. Where, yeah, this is such a different idea that the way the ancient Near Eastern person would understand rest God rests is God sits on the throne and reigns right, and they would see they would hear that as temple language, yes, that Eden is God's temple, and God is reigning over the good creation that that he brought order to.
0: Right. And we're going to see the same thing when we get to the new creation. When you see the New Jerusalem come down, God's filling the temple of the new creation, which is the temple is the new creation, and God's glory is emanating from him on his throne.
1: And like when Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest, same idea. Like, like, yeah, your life can be in shambles on this in this fallen world, but come to me and i will show you that i'm i'm still on the throne i'm still working tor- towards redemption you c- i can still sh- give you a new paradigm of, of the kingdom and give you rest like i can give you rest for your unrest right the unrest of this world i have a solution for
0: right kingdom rest
1: yeah which yeah. which uh, is very intriguing and it it also sp- is something that we should be thinking in terms of, like, how we view Sabbath, how we view, you know, the commandment to to take a day and and remember that God's on the throne. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, so as we know, Genesis 3, disorder comes into the order, right? Yeah. Um, and so from a book by Sidney Gratinus called Chaos to Cosmos, he says, with the fall into sin, the chaos of pain and suffering entered the world. To the woman, and then he g- goes through the consequences of the curse, right, which is uh, pain. T- to Adam, he says, cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's like what used to be a system of order and abundance, and the land was th- the land's function was to bring forth green growing things in abundance for us and for the animals to eat. Now that's disorder has corrupted that. Correct, and yeah. And now it's it's broken and it's not going to work very well.
0: Right. And I was thinking about that too, like where we were saying that in a perfect system where things were ordered, there was still some agency necessary to maintain it. But can you imagine our, and this is where we are now. This is what we know now we are living in a fallen world. We are living in a disordered world. And so even God states there that we will strive harder to just maintain normal yeah. And and the funny thing is that's all we've ever known.
1: Yeah.
0: is this striving. And so
1: like like, like there's forces working against us all the time. All the time. Yeah. yeah. Then gro- God drove them out of paradise. They were to live east of Eden. Life had turned into a painful existence in a hostile, cursed world. The blessed cosmos of paradise had turned into chaos, or we could say in Walton's language, the order had turned into disorder. Not the original um, non-order of Genesis one two verse two, but now an evil chaotic world struggles between animals and animals, between animals and humans, between husband and wife, between nature and humans, and between humans and God. Mm. So yeah, so we get we we got the non-order before God started ordering and then we get this beautiful ordering and everything is given a a function, a beautiful function and a beautiful purpose and meaning. Mm. And then we get disorder, which has come in. And now there's all of this animosity and tension and scarcity.
0: Right. And so I feel like we as, and again, we'll get to this in future episodes, but we as Christians today, if we're pushing back against chaos, what is that like? and we'll get into this like what is our job again it's i don't believe it's just believing the right things it's actually pushing back against chaos by even being vegan you are saving so much you are spreading peace you're you're pushing back against violence you are saving Water resources. I mean, go down the list of all the things. Just yeah. by all, you know, everyone's run the statistics, but all the things you save, all the water resources, the the climate, the ecology, the animals' lives, the animal everything. So anyway,
1: yeah, yeah. And I'd like to share something I was reading by Andrew Lindsay, who I believe has passed away now. Yeah. But he was an Oxford professor at Oxford, a um, ed- theologian. Yep. And I know that there is a documentary about him yeah. coming out soon. Um, he he devoted his career to studying the theology of animals and defending animal rights. And so I'm very excited yeah. to learn all I can about him and, and see that documentary. But it really, it kind of lines up with what we were saying earlier about the function of humans. He... Has a chapter titled, uh, this is from his book, Animal Theology. And he has a chapter that's entitled, Humans as the Servant Species, which again, is pretty groundbreaking, pretty right. unique to go from how we usually see humans as the pinnacle of creation and the kings of, and the, basically the only, th- the humans are the only species that God cares about, is kind of what I learned growing up in the church but he says the, u- the uniqueness of humanity consists in its ability to become the servant species to exercise its full humanity as co-participants and co-workers with god in the redemption of the world and of course he goes on and ha- builds a case and talks about how god is a servant god and the priests were servants to the people and in a in a similar vein like we should be willing to be the servants of creation. Right. So it's it's kind of taking us off the throne.
0: <laughs> well, I think one of the words that we translated last week was talking about service.
1: Yeah, to care for, to, to care ca- for, to, and to cultivate. Yeah, yeah, to serve. Yep. Right. So. Yeah, so it's nice. It's nice that other people have come before us in this in this vein as well. Right. And also in his book, he cr- quotes. Uh, 18th century theologian named Humphrey Primit, who uh, in 1776 wrote and published a work called Dissertation on the Duty of Mercy and the Sin of Cruelty to Brute Animals. And in that, Primit writes We may pretend to what religion we please, but cruelty is atheism. We may make our boast of Christianity but cruelty is infidelity. We may trust to our orthodoxy, but cruelty is the worst of heresies.
0: Wow. it's <laughs> pretty potent.
1: Cruelty is atheism. Cruelty is the worst of heresies. Cruelty is infidelity. Right.
0: And see, for me, everything we're talking about right here, cruelty is not order. Cruelty is, is disorder. It's disruptive.
1: Or to, to take the logos... Um, where everything has meaning, we're basically saying certain things don't have meaning. Right. And, and so we, it's just fine to be cruel. Right.
0: And you think about, uh, you know, in, in the dairy industry, when calves are taken from their mothers and the mother is looking for the calf and, and they're crying out to each other, that is disruptive. Mm-hmm. That is disruptive to that family. It's cruel. It's cruel and it's disruptive. And guess what? That's disorder. That's chaos. And our jobs as Christians is not to be spreading chaos, but to be spreading cosmos.
1: In fact, it's order. it's heresy to do so.
0: Yeah, according to that. Yeah. No, that's a very interesting quote.
1: It, re- it also reminds me, I know that there's variations of the quote that basically says, all of theology is either standing with the oppressed or standing with the oppressor. Right. Um,
0: yeah, James Cohen, I think, something like, I think he said something like that. Yeah,
1: you know, you could say that about every political policy. Is it either standing with the oppressed or standing with the oppressor? Or every macro or micro decision we make in our lives, we could ask ourselves, am I standing with the oppressed or am I standing with the oppressor? And it just, you know, if we wonder about God and God's will, we can look at Jesus, right? And And who did Jesus always stand with?
0: Right. Always stood with the oppressed.
1: Consistently over and over again right. stood with the oppressed against right. the oppressors.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: So I mean I think that's a great way to wrap up this show that everything God ordered and gave meaning to and gave a purpose to, including humans, and our our purpose is to continue that kind of order.
0: Right. The way he would do it. Right. The way God would do it in a godly way. With divine logic and divine reason. And that's just it. With this image that we we bear, the image of God, we are to be order producers, and we are to be pushing back against chaos.
1: Pushing back against cruelty. Yep. Yeah. All of it. Cool.
0: So, yeah. Well, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for joining us on this conversation, and have a great day.
0: See you next time.